Hello and welcome back to The Fall of the Roman Empire. It's Nick Holmes and this is episode 67 called Awaking a Sleeping Giant. In the last episode, we covered the life of ordinary people in a small part of the Roman Empire as it disintegrated into chaos in the 5th century, or at least what we can glean life was like from the record of the life of St Severinus. In this episode, I'd like to take a step back and consider the legacy of Attila the Hun. Why? Because I'll suggest it was fundamental to what will follow in future podcast episodes, which is the rise of the Eastern Empire under the Emperor Justinian and his reconquest of much of the West. And it's also central to the book I'm currently finishing, which is the third volume in my series on the fall of the Roman Empire and will be called Rome and Attila. So, without further ado, let's look at Attila's legacy, and I'll start by quoting the distinguished historian E.A. Thompson, who said of the Huns, quote, Did the Huns make no direct contribution to the progress of Europe? Had they nothing to offer besides the terror which uprooted the Germanic nations and sent them fleeing into the Roman Empire? The answer is no, they offered nothing. Their society was such that they could make no contribution like those of the Germans, the Persians and the Arabs. They were mere plunderers and marauders, end quote. This damning verdict may be true, but I think it misses an indirect influence of huge significance for Roman and European history. Yes, the Huns were terrifying and destructive, and precisely because of this, they caused the Eastern Roman Empire to transform its army in the 440s from a fairly ineffective force to again being one of the foremost military machines in the world. This was because Attila's onslaughts across the Danube in 441 and 447 were deadly affairs directed against the beating heart of the Eastern Empire, its capital Constantinople. For the first time since the Battle of Adrianople, the East had to address its military deficiencies. The result was a mass mobilisation somewhat akin to the mobilisations of manpower which the Roman Republic had made centuries before when confronted with the invasions of Italy by the Greek king Pyrrhus and then Hannibal. And just as Pyrrhus and Hannibal had caused the Roman army by necessity to become much more professional, I want to suggest that it was Attila who motivated the Eastern Romans to improve their army so that it was again a serious fighting force, capable, for example, of mounting a major expedition to recover Carthage in 468. Although, as you know, that expedition failed, in the Emperor Justinian's reign, this army would reconquer North Africa, Italy, and even parts of Spain. The great age of Justinian has much to thank Attila for. The reason this hasn't been focused on by historians is, I think, that our sources are extremely thin. For example, we have almost no commentary on Attila's critical campaign of 447. Indeed, until recently, historians even disputed the number of campaigns Attila fought against the Eastern Empire. Some thought there were three wars in 441 443 and 447. Now the scholarly consensus believes there were two in 441 and 447. 
The second of these in 447 is still shrouded in mystery since our sources on it are so light. But it's certain, as I described in episode 54, that a major battle was fought at the Utus River that year, which I think was as big, if not bigger, than the much more famous and better recorded Battle of the Catalonian Plains in 451. Unfortunately, we have very little commentary about the Battle of the Utus River. It's only briefly mentioned in three sources. One of them says Arnagliscus, the Roman commander of the army, died after he carried on fighting when his horse was killed beneath him. Another says, quote, The general Arnagliscus was killed in Dacia Repensis, near the river Utus, in a fierce battle against King Attila, in which many of the enemy were slain, end quote. It's these last eight words in which many of the enemy were slain, which are the most revealing. For we know Attila crossed the Danube in 447 with a vast army. According to Jordanes, quote, his army is said to have numbered 500,000 men, end quote. Clearly a gross exaggeration, but nevertheless, it would have been very large, including not just Huns, but also a formidable collection of German tribes from east of the Rhine and north of the Danube, such as Goths, Gepids, Skiri, Rugi, and many more, since Attila ruled approximately half of ancient Germania. To have challenged this army would have been a brave undertaking. To have slain many within it would have required a very substantial Roman army. This means Arnagliscus almost certainly commanded the core of a rebuilt Eastern Roman army, probably as large, if not larger, than that led by Valens at Adrianople. We also know that in 443, Theodosius had signed instructions calling for a major rebuilding of defences along the Danube. And that, of course, was in complete contrast with Attila's experience in the West, where the Roman army was small and ineffective and Aetius relied on the Visigoths and other Germans to form most of the coalition army that faced Attila at the Battle of the Catalonian Plains. And as you'll recall, when Attila invaded Italy in 452, he found it barely defended at all. But the most interesting evidence of all lies with Constantinople's refusal to pay tribute to Attila. Constantinople twice refused to pay the agreed tribute to the Huns, first in 443, when the agreed £1,400 of gold was refused, and while not specifically mentioned in any sources, most historians accept this happened, since in 447 Attila wanted a back payment of £6,000 of gold, implying the annual payment of £1,400 agreed in 441 had not been paid for a little over four years. Second, as you remember, the Romans refused to pay Attila tribute again in 450, when the new soldier Emperor Marcion cancelled the payment of £2,100 of gold agreed by Theodosius II in 447. Rather than take on the East Roman army, Attila preferred to turn west, attacking Gaul in 451 and Italy in 452. 
In 453, Attila died, while Marcion was preparing for round three with the Huns. The fact Marcion was willing to fight Attila a third time means he must have thought the East Roman army was strong enough to do this. But until recently, historians have not talked about a major remilitarization in the 440s. But that's now changed since the American historian Anthony Caldellis has co-published in 2023 this year with Marion Cruz a scholarly work transforming our understanding of the Eastern Roman army. Entitled The Field Armies of the East Roman Empire, 361 to 630, it argues, quote, the threat of Attila and the devastation of his invasions prompted Constantinople to design and employ a new five-army military system, end quote. So what was this five-army system? The evidence for five field armies stems from the Noticia Dignitatum, a surviving ancient list of the legions and vexillations, as the units smaller than the legions were called, in the late Roman army in both east and west, complete with pictures of their shield designs, camps and fortifications. The Noticia describes the Eastern Empire as having five field armies. Two of them were based in the western provinces, the armies of Illyricum and Thrace, while the eastern frontier had its own army, the army of the Oriens. There were also two Pricental armies based in and around Constantinople itself, so-called because they were in Pricenti, meaning in the emperor's presence. A magister militum, equivalent to a modern field marshal, was in charge of each field army. The noticia suggests a field army had about 20,000 men. In reality, at any one time, they were probably smaller than that, depending on the revenues available to pay them and the casualties suffered in battle. So if we think each of the five field armies had somewhere between ten to 20,000 soldiers, that would imply a total field army of fifty to 100,000, which seems credible for an empire the size of the Eastern Roman one, with some 30 million inhabitants. In addition, there were stationary border units called the Limitanii, as described previously, since the Roman army was, as you know, divided between the border troops, the Limitanii, and the central field armies, often called the Comitatenses. These second-rate soldiers were distinctly inferior to those in the field armies, who were better paid, more experienced, and better equipped. However, the Noticia suggests they were more numerous than the field armies, so perhaps there could have been as many as 150,000 of them. Therefore, the total strength of the Eastern Army was theoretically around 250,000 men, with 100,000 in the field armies and the rest in the Limitanii. But this is very much a back-of-the-envelope figure, and the size of the army would have varied considerably from decade to decade, probably ranging from as little as 100,000 to the maximum size of 250,000. So far, so good. But the Noticia has one major flaw. No one knows when it was written. The scholarly consensus has long dated it to around 395, the year when the Emperor Theodosius I died. The rationale for this was always flimsy, based on little more 
than a perception that 395 was a watershed year for the Roman Empire when Theodosius reunited it and supposedly left it stable and safe. As described in episode 47 on the decline of the Roman army, my view is different from this, and I regard 395 as a low point for the Roman army when Theodosius's civil wars had all but destroyed the elite regular Roman regiments and left the Goths as the Romans' main military force, but a mercenary one. And this, of course, proved disastrous when the servant turned on its master, as happened when the Goths sacked Rome in 410. Anthony Caldellus's work supports this view by changing the date of the Noticia to the 440s. So in 395, we simply don't know how many field armies there were, but I suspect there were probably only two, one based in the east to combat the Persians and the other in the west to protect the Danube frontier. This would fit with the very limited help provided by the east to the western empire in the crisis of 406 to 10, when Britain and much of Gaul and Spain were lost and Rome was ultimately sacked. The most the Eastern Empire did was to send 4,000 soldiers to Ravenna in 408 to help the Emperor Honorius. There's another key question that arises from the changing of the date of the Noticia to the Four Forces. Where did the resources to pay for this larger army come from? We've no detailed answer to this, but most historians think the Eastern Empire was undergoing a period of general economic growth in the 5th century, which would have translated into greater state revenues. So it seems reasonable to assume that the growth of the Eastern Roman army in the 440s was supported by a buoyant economy. In contrast, the Western economy had all but collapsed, as had the Western Roman army. Another question is, who commanded this new army? At first, it was mainly Germanic generals like Gainas and Aspar, similar to the situation in the West, where Stilicho dominated what was left of the Western army. But, whereas the Western army disintegrated in the decades after 410, and Ricimer and Odoacer ended up ruling Italy with their own German troops, the opposite happened in the east. The German generals were pushed out. Gainas was expelled and Aspar eventually executed, and a new breed of eastern soldier emperors led by Marcion and Zeno took the reins of power. Redating the Noticia to the Four Forces leads us to yet another crucial question – which is why was the Eastern Roman Empire effectively demilitarised in the first half of the 5th century before Attila shocked it into action? I think the answer lies mainly with Persia. Persia had always been Rome's traditional foe. In the 3rd and 4th centuries, it inflicted some of the worst defeats on Rome in its entire history, such as the defeat and capture of the Emperor Valerian in 260, who was humiliated into becoming a human footstool for Shapur I to mount his horse. But this changed in the 5th century when there was almost perpetual peace between Rome and Persia. And this was because for most of the 5th century, Persia was itself beset by nomadic invaders on its eastern frontier. These were the White Huns, 
also called Kidarites and Hephthalites, who were in fact their successive ruling dynasties. The White Huns were similar, but quite separate from the European Huns, who were pushing the German tribes west. The term white is thought to denote geography rather than skin colour, because the Huns colour-coded their compass, with white signifying the west, black the north, red the south, and blue the east. But before the White Huns arrived, when the European Huns raided through the Caucasus in 395, this alarmed the Persians sufficiently to make an alliance with the Romans to guard the Caucasus against further Hunnic invasion. The result was not only peace between Rome and Persia at the beginning of the 5th century, but the two even became partners supporting each other against the encroaching barbarians. The Persian Shah and Shah Yazdegerd I regarded Rome as a useful ally and relaxed the anti-Christian laws the Sasanians had previously instituted, recognising the Nestorian Church as a tolerated Christian religion in Persia in 410. This rapprochement led to an extraordinary gesture of friendship when the eastern emperor Arcadius asked Yazdegerd to be the guardian of his son, the future Theodosius II. In contrast to the long and costly wars fought between Roman Persia in the 3rd, 4th and later in the 6th centuries, the 5th was almost free of any conflict. There were only two short wars between the two great powers. The first happened in 421-2, when Yazdegerd's son Bahram V began a persecution of Christians in Persia in revenge for alleged Roman attacks on Zoroastrian temples. This tit-for-tat war only lasted a few months, and both sides rapidly agreed to a peace. Another short war occurred in 440 over the Roman non-payment of gold to Persia to defend the Caucasus from the Huns. The details are unclear, but the Romans had stopped paying what might have been as much as £500 of gold annually to the Persians, prompting Yazdegerd II to threaten war if the payment, which he termed tribute, was not made. The Eastern Emperor Theodosius II was offended by the term tribute and hostilities broke out. However, as with the previous war nearly 20 years before, there was no enthusiasm on either side to pursue it aggressively. Distracted by the vandal capture of Carthage, the Romans quickly sought an end to hostilities by agreeing to some sort of payment to the Persians, which has never been specified. In their turn, the Sasanians, still under pressure from the White Huns, were only too happy to restore good relations. As an indication of goodwill, both sides agreed to demilitarise their frontier in Mesopotamia. The only other conflict was in Armenia, which the Persians invaded in 451 when they defeated the Christian Armenians at the Battle of Adharar. Control of Armenia proved transitory. Although they tried to impose Zoroastrianism on the largely Christian population, this met with limited success, and in 484, the Armenians secured their independence and the right to Christian worship at the Treaty of Navarsak. And Persia became less and less of a potential threat to Constantinople in the second half of the 5th century, as increasing attacks by the White Huns dominated Sasanian military and political resources. In 484, matters reached a critical head when the Persian Shah and Shah Peroz 
was killed with most of the elite Persian cavalry in a Hunnic trap near Balkh in modern Afghanistan. The Roman chronicler Procopius has left us with a detailed description of the battle in which the Huns dug a long trench concealed with shrubbery and wood. They then charged at the Sasanian army only to wheel around and feign a retreat. The Huns fled and retreated over the trench using a path they'd left raised. Completely unaware of this, the Persians galloped after the Huns along a wide front, hoping to outflank and surround them. Thousands of their elite armoured cavalry disappeared head-first into the trench, impaling themselves on wooden spikes buried in the trench. The slaughter was immense. Almost all of the Persian cavalry were killed. Peroz and many of the Persian nobility also died. It was in many ways an equivalent of the Battle of Adrianople for the Persians. It broke Persia and reduced it for several decades to being an impotent vassal of the White Huns. Persia's removal as a threat to the Eastern Empire offered Constantinople a huge opportunity to intervene in the West and save the Western Empire, but it didn't. This was really due to political incompetence. Theodosius's son Arcadius and his son Theodosius II were buffoons who relied on their ministers to run the government and army. In Arcadius's reign, a series of three ministers ruled the empire, Rufinus, Eutropius and Anthemius. And you'll recall that with the exception of Anthemius, who built the Theodosian walls of Constantinople and had a more strategic vision of the empire's needs, the other two were more interested in preserving their own power than either saving the West or rebuilding the Eastern army. In fact, they shrank the Eastern army as much as they could, since they were suspicious of generals who might use the army against them. For example, after Rufinus falsely claimed he'd led the army to victory over the Huns when they invaded Mesopotamia in 395, a claim blatantly false since there was no battle and the Huns had simply withdrawn back to the north after concluding a successful raid, he reduced the army's size in case any of the generals posed a threat to him. This demilitarization continued after Arcadius's death in 408, when he was succeeded by Theodosius II, another ineffective emperor who yielded power first to his elder sister Pulcheria, then to his wife Eudocia, and finally to his eunuch minister Chrysaphius. During his reign, and until Attila crossed the Danube in 441, the army was purposefully kept to a minimum, not because the Eastern Empire was short of money, as in the West, but because Pulcheria, Eudocia, and Chrysaphius were afraid of a strong army that might threaten their own authority. So, in conclusion, it wasn't until Attila directly threatened Constantinople that the Eastern Army was restored to a decent size. Five field armies came into being, probably more than doubling the professional corps of the army from a previous two field armies. The Roman army had been reborn. So where does that leave us with Attila? Many commentators, like E.A. Thompson, as I quoted earlier, have said that he left no legacy. Unlike Genghis Khan, he left no empire that endured and changed world history. That may be true, but it ignores the indirect influence he had on the Eastern Empire, where he awoke a sleeping giant. 
the great age of Justinian had its roots in Attila's wooden palace. And that ends this episode. Thanks so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed it. And as you know, we've come to a pivotal point in this podcast, which is the end of the Western Empire. But before we move on to what is my all-time favourite bit of Roman history, the age of Justinian and the reconquest of the West by his general Belisarius, I still need to put the finishing touches to my third book in the series, which accompanies this podcast. So the next episode will be in five weeks' time on Saturday the 2nd of September, when we'll start the extraordinary story of the age of Justinian. And in the meantime, please do check out my new book, The Fall of Rome. And if you want a free ebook, please visit my new website at nickholmesauthor.com, where you'll find my first book called The Byzantine World War, about the decline of the Byzantine Empire and the start of the Crusades. And if you have holidays in August, have a great holiday. Thanks for listening and see you next time. <music>